Hello, everybody. My name is Len. I am your host of Targeted Justice v. Garland, uh, a podcast about an extraordinary lawsuit. We haven't seen you for a while because we had a change in our schedule. Uh, if you recall, uh, November 6th was the day when um, the defendants for the government filed their legal brief, and two days later we had a complete analysis. Me and Anna spent a significant amount of time going through it. So there was no, there was a Wednesday episode, there was no Sunday episode, and now we're meeting again. So you will see this on Sunday, November 19th. And Anna, please say hello to our audience. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm just so happy to be here with you in the battle. Likewise, it is a battle. I apologize for the people who expect me to be chipper and uh, like I am every time. As you know, things are happening, but this is not a place to complain. This is a place to educate. So let's go on with our legal segment. I prepared some, some slides. Today, we will have two legal segments. One is about our case and one about another case that is also in front of the Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit. Let's start a legal segment about our own case, and I called it When Rules Do Not Apply, and you will see what is going on. I actually created a little chronological list for you so you can see what has been going on on, the, on September 5th, we filed uh, plaintiff's appellants. We filed a legal brief. And then on November 6th, the defendant appellees filed a legal brief. And we found so many things wrong with it. And so immediately, two days later, just on the day that we had the podcast, you and I filed a motion to strike this non-compliant brief. However, the motion was denied with literally one word. It's denied. There's no explanation. Well, then you, on the very next day, you filed a motion to reconsider because you had laid out beautifully like 17 different arguments why it was non-compliant. Well, the, the government, um, when you file a brief, before any court, district court or court of appeals, you have to submit before your arguments a certificate of interested persons. In the district court, it's called a disclosure statement. And basically what it does is that you have to put in there people that you know have a financial stake in the case in order to help the judges uh, make a determination if they could have a, a conflict of interest, not wait until like later in the process. So just doing it early on saves time and effort to the court. So in and and it's so it's no different in the in the circuit uh, in the court of appeals. It it requires that with your brief, with your uh, the opening brief or the reply brief. In, in the case of the defendants, they filed the certificate of interested persons. I objected to it because it wasn't signed by the attorneys that every certification needs to be signed. That's what the regulations say. Well, it wasn't electronically signed like mine was. And it it was very different from the same certificate of interested persons that have been submitted in prior cases, including the official capacity defendants cases where, for example, Getty versus Mallorca or Cova versus Ray, where the government had submitted a reply brief where they put the certificate of interested persons in full compliance with the local rule of a 28.21 of the Fifth Circuit that provides that you have to list everybody that has a financial stake in the case, including attorneys, including adversary parties. So, um, we, you know, I objected to it because it didn't include that. I also objected to the fact that, as we all know by now, because that we learned, I learned it, I think it was October 26, that Mr. Charles Cable, within two weeks of the filing of a complaint, resigned from his position as a, in the terrorist screening center. So it is uh, our position that it's a lack of candor on behalf of defendants to not have included Mr. Michael Gleshin, who is the new official capacity defendant, as the director of the terrorist screening center. 
So that is the second reason why. Uh, and the court didn't agree with us. And uh, so I just put it out there and, and submitted it because it was my duty to. So we are now preparing the reply to the reply. Okay. So it's like basically an opposition or a reaction to the brief by the defendants. What's bothering me is that the ease with which it was dismissed. After you presented 17 beautifully laid out arguments, it was just denied with a literally a single line and uh, without any explanation. And that's what I mean by the rules simply don't apply to the government defendants. And that's extremely concerning. What the government says is that when it's the government, they don't have to list persons. They have to certify. I have real hopes that the court will understand, you know, how important it is. Just because, um, for example, in the complaint, we delineated private corporations such as InfraGuard, Citizen Corps, and Lidos Corporation. These Lidos are, is, for example, a private corporation that has targeting officers. These are private people that, in our opinion, do the illegal work because you can, you know, law enforcement cannot delegate to private parties the law enforcement work, right? So in this case, FBI is delegating to the Lidos Corporation and paying them millions of dollars a year to do the targeting of innocent Americans. Because that's what they do. They are tar- They have targeting officers, among other things that they do. Also, the um, Citizen Corps, we know that they are an arm of the fusion centers that are the boots on the ground that carry out a lot of the gang stalking on targeted individuals. They get grants from the DHS. That's how, you know, that's their lifeline. Same with InfraGuard. InfraGuard dedicates themselves to doing the hacking and the spying of targeted individuals. And uh, their funding comes from the FBI. So I believe that at least those three are the ones that I know have a financial stake in the outcome of this case because the targeted individual program is declared illegal as it is. An illegal and unconstitutional and heinous, horrible program then and on American more than anything, well, those corporations would have a substantial economic loss and would have to do layoffs. So that's our position. The court didn't agree and we respect that, but uh, I had the duty to put it out there. Thank you, Anna. So my next slide looks the same, except our legal brief is in the red box. What happened to our legal brief is that Anna made a serious, serious discovery. The content of the page 20 is different between what you produced and what is found in the ducats. This is extremely concerning. And I will po- I will show you both pages. What here's what Anna produced. And here's what's in the docket. So the highlighted sentence, it magically disappeared from the file that's in the docket. And I don't have a good explanation, but maybe we can come up with some hypothesis. The sentence that disappeared reads, none of them, uh, referring to the plaintiffs, none of them has ever been arrested indicted, judged, convinced, or sentenced for a terrorist-related offense. None of the plaintiffs encounter security or screen obstacles while traveling. So in the version that's in the docket, only the beginning of the paragraph is there, but not those two sentences that follow. How could it happen? Do you have any theories? Okay. First of all, let me let me clarify. The court has absolutely no responsibility for this, okay? <laughs> the, the first document that you see was the one that I originally filed 
on the 5th of November, that November 5th. And because I, I had to correct, if you see on the second one, for example, the paragraph uh, right before it, the little letters that say ROA 1627, that's record on appeal. So I had to correct the references of the record of, of appeal on some of the pages, okay? So the clerk called me and said, hey, counselor, you have to correct it. I'm like, okay, so I corrected them on the six and submitted the brief again, the new brief. So the new brief, when it was submitted, it was lacking those two sentences. But I did not change the contents of the document. I changed, I only added the record on appeal references that the clerk had asked me to do. So it either happened that somebody touched my computer and erased it from my last document before filing, or somebody entered, hacked the document inside my computer, either physically or through hacking, either way. But I did not delete those sentences. So now, and this I, it, this was at 2.30 in the morning today that I got this instinct to check word by word the first brief filed on the 5th and the one that was ultimately substituted, the second one. And I corroborated that it left my house, it left my computer without those two sentences, but I know I didn't delete them. So the deletion happened while the document was under my, my control, but I didn't do it. And, and this goes to the hacking that you and I are constantly victims of. And when you think of motive, who else would be interested in deleting those two sentences? I can only think of uh, the usual suspects, right? And, and so, or the people doing the work for the usual suspects. And and so that's that's what's really concerning. Just like in paragraph 25 of my amended complaint, the word data set showed up when I have never out of my hands written that word. So it's very concerning the intrusion and the constant intrusion and the constant hacking. So now I have to check the entire documents word by word and see if there's there are other deletions that happened to the document before I resent it. You know, again, it's not the courts to blame. It is something that happened in my computer, but it wasn't me. Could it be? Could the substitution be made while the email travel? Because what you send to file in the docket go always go through your server. So it arrives to the server, and then from the server it goes to the destination. So while it is on the server, could the attachment be replaced? And you would not know about it because what came out of your computer and what arrived to the docket are two different attachments, even though they appear to be the same. Well, I can tell you, I was reviewing the the different versions of the document. I had version 11. And I think that in version 10, I had those sentences. And in version 11, I did not. I don't think it happened in transit. I think it happened with a hacking to my computer. Yeah, because version 11 doesn't have it, but I think version 10 did have it. So that's where it happened. So I know I didn't delete it. But you know what? It's no big deal because right now I'm going to open my reply with, with those two sentences, but it's okay, you know, because I detected it and I'm going to put them again. And, and you know what, it, when I'm doing something that these criminals don't like, they start inserting a, a virtual screwdriver on top of my head. And, and I've told you many times, I say, then I do it more because I know they don't like what I'm doing. And this is the same thing. I know this is their Achilles heel. The targeted individuals have never been arrested, indicted, tried, or convicted of any terrorist offense. Therefore, there is no place for them in a terrorist database. And it's as simple as that. That's what they don't want the court to know, but the court is going to know it. But that's exactly what this boils down to.
Okay. Well, in connection with this statement, I have these three questions. What is the special meaning of these two sentences to the case? Here's the thing. We have a constitutional presumption of innocence. And these all these watch lists and this list here and there, most of the lists that the FBI maintains is people that have been convicted of a certain crime. For example, you have the violent gang members. It's people that have been convicted that have, you have the sexual offenders list, okay? It's people that have been convicted of a crime. But in this particular case, by FBI's own admission, you have people that not only have they never incurred in any act of terrorism or have been arrested, indicted, tried, or convicted of it, but they have no ties to terrorism as has been admitted by a former deputy director of the FBI. So they have no business in a list that has been only authorized, and, and I'm gonna to talk to you about that later, because the, the, about the interesting case that is pending before the Fifth Circuit, that was this was authorized via an executive order of the president of the United States at that time, George Bush Jr. And uh, it only contemplated including known and suspected terrorists, nothing else, no one else. So why is it so meaningful? It's because you cannot put on lists people that have not been convicted of anything related to that list, okay? It's like, just like they can't put me in the sexual offenders list because I've never been arrested, convicted, accused of anything like that. Well, the same goes here. You cannot put on this list anybody that has absolutely nothing to do with terrorism. That's the big illegality, and that's why they don't want us to tell the court. How will this be remedied? Well, I, I told you, I'm going to put it as my opening statement, in my introductory opening statement in the reply that I'm going to file. What effect on the scheduling of the arguments? None, because the scheduling uh, of the oral argument depends on when I submit the my brief. 60 days later, they, they give 60 days, but I'm going to try to ask for an expedited uh, hearing schedule. Because I know that there are so many people suffering, and I suffer for each and every one of you, especially the children, especially the grandmas. I know how urgent this is, but at the same rate, I hope you understand. Um, I'm also a TI, and I also get attacked, and I also get, um, you know, all sorts of um, sabotage. So I am uh, doing, you know, I am giving it all I have. But the brief will be submitted when it's, you know, within the timeline, obviously, but when I am ready to submit it. Okay. All right. So, but it's important that it doesn't have any impact on scheduling, scheduling the oral arguments. I think that's important for our viewers who are really curious and impatient, and I understand why, to know when we might have oral arguments, because that would be a historic event. The lawyers arguing this case in front of the judges of the U.S. Court of Appeals. And let me tell you that the United States, uh, the, the defendants, they wrote that they don't think an oral argument is necessary on this case. in this case. When this is the first time that any court of the United States faces the controversy of why are innocent people, innocent Americans protected by the United States Constitution placed on a terrorist database. And not only that, that 97% of the names on that database belong to people that have no ties to terrorism. That is why it's so crucial so crucial that oral arguments are held on in this case and the government said no no we don't we don't need them yes we saw that in the legal brief okay with that now we're going to take a pause because i want people to know that this is the end of the update in our case now 
we're going to take a look at another legal case related to TSDB that will be also in front of the Court of Appeals in the same Fifth Circuit. And if you want to get a reminder about that case, see our uh, episode 22, which is called Fifth Circuit is the place to be. So I'm going to close this uh, PowerPoint and I'm going to open another one that was prepared for that episode. We're going to go through it and then we're going to see what is new in that remarkable case. Okay, we're going back in time. If you remember episode 22, we reviewed it and we called it another Fifth Circuit TSDB case. And this is the case called Corvus v. Ray. And obviously, uh, Corvus is one of the plaintiffs, and Ray is uh, Christopher Ray, the director of TSDB. And we're just going to go over it really quick, just as a reminder. It's, it's it, The case was filed in Northern District of Texas. It has five plaintiffs. They're all... Uh, U.S. citizen. It has six individual defendants. Plaintiffs are represented uh, represented by four attorneys uh, associated with CARE, Council of American Islamic Relations. Uh, case was dismissed at the district level in March of this year, and then it went to uh, on appeal to the same Fifth Circuit. They filed the legal brief, which we analyzed on this show and the issue was whether federal agencies creation maintenance and operation of the federal terror watch list poses a major question that demands clear congressional authorization and if so whether such clear congressional authorization exists i think that was in front of the district court and there were different claims brought under four different clauses. And the district court believed that the Congress clearly authorized the list, but it was based on a vague mishmash of statutory language. And the plaintiff said, Congress has not authorized to create, maintain, administer, or use of million name lists to infringe on the liberty of U.S. citizen, which constitute extraordinary assertion of federal agency power. Uh, uh, let's go to the meat of it. Uh, yeah, basically, we reviewed this case. You can go back. We talked about it uh, in, in much details. But what's new is that on September 25th, they filed a reply to the a government brief to the defendant's brief. And this document was brought to you. And, and if you bring something up, I know it's really important. So I want you to go over the arguments and educate us why you think this case is so remarkable and important. And I will show you the summary of the arguments and you feel free to comment on that, please. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is in the district court did agree that placing somebody on the watch list, it's what it's deemed a major question, which is um, for a federal agency, it, it affects uh, Americans' lives enough so as to that it should be an act of Congress, okay? So um, the government had initially said in this case, no, no, it's not a major question. It's not a major question, but the district court, even though they dismissed the case, they had agreed it was a major question that placing somebody in the, on the watch list entailed so many important aspects of their lives that it was a major question. So, but it still dismissed the case, right? is saying that there was legal authorization for it. So the government, in their reply brief to to uh, CARES, uh, to Mr. Kovac, they said that they only had to look now at TSA's use of the watch list because Congress did authorize TSA to screen passengers with a watch list that is prepared by the FBI. But FBI's authority 
is granted by Homeland Security Presidential Directive 6, which is not an act of Congress, rather it's an executive order. I'm going to make it available so you put this the link of this reply brief because it's just absolutely so beautifully, it's so perfect. It's so perfectly written. And I have to uh, tell everybody, this, this case is written from the perspective of people that are screened when they travel. So they are deemed to be in either categories one or two, you know, known as suspected terrorists. And, uh, and it's probably been, you know, 30, 40 cases that have been filed or more challenging the TSCB. And they have gotten to this point building up on on the information and the discovery and everything that they have done on prior cases to this climax where where I think, I really think that they're going to prevail in this case. And I'm not, you know, a scholar or anything like that, but I can tell you it's just so absolutely solid. And they say, yeah, now the government abandoned the argument that it's not a major question rule, right? And it's saying, well, it doesn't matter because TSA is authorized by Congress. But the TSA is not uh, the one that creates the watch list. And that's what they're challenging here, that Ray and the FBI and the people that create this watch list and maintain it have to have authority from Congress and they don't have it. So I really, if you're, you know, I, I think this, this, uh, series has been very empowering to a lot of targeted individuals and non-targeted individuals because we have to learn that cases in federal court are highly technical. And uh, and that's why, you know, for example, I, I was explaining to someone, if you did not bring the matter before the district court, you cannot bring it before the court of appeals, you know? And when in the first brief that uh, of this case, uh, the appellants said, what we are talking about a little while before the appellants said none of the appellants have ever been arrested accused indicted tried for a terrorist offense and then the government replied no 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 you didn't say that before the district court so you cannot bring it up now but regardless of that their arguments are just so solid and so true because they go into how for example being placed, uh, the, the government doesn't have the authority to place without Congress authority to place people on this list and subject them to extensive security screening, impose adverse immigration consequences on them, distribute their information, which is what we are alleging in the complaint, to thousands of law enforcement and private entities, which use it to affect everyday interactions like traffic stops, municipal permit processes, firearm purchases, and licensing applications. So it's just a jewel of a brief, and uh, we're going to make it available for people to read it. Uh, let's uh, take a look at the second page, because the second page okay. continues the argument, and just mind-boggling, it continues the same sentiment that you already presented. To me, the core of this argument is that the Congress did not authorize clearly did not authorize. Yet the government argues that there's this li little bits and pieces of some kind of regulations that they they put together that are supposed to convince the, convince the judges otherwise. That was, to me, a beautifully put argument. Yeah, those bits and pieces of regulation are limited to the role of the Transportation Security Administration in ports and airports, et cetera. But it doesn't grant them, A, the authority to create a watch list, or B, the authority for that watch list to be used across the board in affecting all aspects of lives of people that are there. And that's why it's it's the major questions rules. That's why it's such, such, such a beautiful argument, and it's just so perfect he the, he he opens his argument saying uh citing a case from the supreme court it says administrative agencies must ground their actions in valid grant of authority from congress well the fbi doesn't have a valid delegation from congress to craft to prepare and maintain this terrorist database 
the interesting thing is that that Homeland Security Presidential Directive 6 from 2003, how come Congress in all these years, in spite of all this litigation, hasn't come forth and decided to enact legislation limiting, setting forth the boundaries? You know, it, it is time for Congress to defund the illegal activity going on at the FBI, just labeling anybody as a domestic terrorist for the purposes of continuing, you know, the money-making machine. I just, you know, Congress has to step in and do something about it. Is it really possible that a legal case could force the Congress to act? I don't recall instances like that, but I might be wrong. Yeah, many times, many times judicial decisions are the ones that lead to uh, enactment of legislation to clarify or you know um, or or to set forth the stage for a particular situation. So, but then Congress has been shy. For example, in the situation with Bivens, which is the civil rights claims against federal employees, even though Bivens is a 1971 case, Congress has not created a section 1983 for filing lawsuits against federal employees that clearly violate their authority, they, they, I mean, go beyond their authority and violate individual civil rights. They have refused to do that. So that's why we still have to go through judicial interpretation uh, pursuant to Vivens when, when we're dealing with civil rights violations. So sometimes it happens and sometimes they just, you know, Congress looks the other way. Right now, Congress has the renovation of Section 702 uh, of the FISA Act pending, which is something that all targeted individuals should be calling and writing to their congressperson and telling them, do not renew this. This is only used to spy on innocent Americans targeted by these rogue agencies. And this is a duty, like I say every day, you wake up, what am I gonna do today to end my targeting? Well, a great idea is for you to send an email, write a letter and call your congressperson and tell them, do not renew, but do it, not telling you their story of how they did this to me and they didn't know. Do it out of, look, FBI admitted that in 2020 they did 278,000 intrusions and uh, surveillance on Americans that don't meet without probable cause because the those the 702 section allows the FBI to get warrants to do surveillance on you without meeting the threshold of probable cause. And that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So if, you know, that's, if I can get something through, it's, you know, that's one thing that we really need to focus on this and the next week, being actively doing something to end your targeting. My take takeaway from this is there's no direct mechanism of how a judicial decision can force the Congress to do something. Only we can elect people and we can force them to act. So we need to elect people for whom this status quo, this this current situation with 7-2, with FISA court, are, are not acceptable. Unfortunately, I don't see people in Congress currently who want to change that status quo. They bite around the edges just for establishing themselves as strong political figures, but they're not really interested in changing the status quo. And that those are the people that we need in government. Those are the people that we need at the highest level of the executive branch and the legislative branch. Well, there's a lot of fear mongering going on also regarding the terrorism because, oh, no, there's a heightened terrorism uh, um, you know, threat because of the Israel war. No, the terrorists, because by sworn statement obtained in the El Haiti versus Cable case, we have evidence admissions 
by the FBI and the TSA people that the terrorist screening database has not stopped a single act of terrorism. Let me say that again. The terrorist screening database has never stopped an act of terrorism. So any congressperson that buys into the fear mongering regarding the 702 and the need to do the American, the, no, 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 no. It's just uneducated people that don't want to look into, delve into the evidence not only the pleadings we enumerated, all of it, you know, but what activists are doing and bringing forth to them. See Friend, the whistleblower from the FBI, he's been very active against this. He's saying this is just, you know, 702 has, cannot be reauthorized. He uh, He's one that uh, people should follow because he's he's really, a, he, I don't know, he knows much about our program our targeted individual program, but he is very, very active because he knows that the FBI misuses Section 702 to spy on innocent Americans. I agree. Steve Friend is truly a, a remarkable figure, and I wish that he would take upon himself to get involved with the targeting program, which I'm sure he knows about, but for some reason... It never comes up in the way we talk about it. Uh, it always comes up as a excess in the power given to the FBI, in the way they are financially motivated. I've never heard the word targeted individual from Steve Friend. And I think there's a probably a reason for that. And I don't know what it is. There's another whistleblower by the name of Kyle Serafin, and he calls targeted individuals crazy people. And and they're, you know, they're friends and call, former colleagues. I don't know if he is influenced by him, but he he has been respectful and, and I think he has an open mind. And, and I'm just, I don't think he knows enough about the program as to make public statements about it. Or maybe he's afraid he'll be, he'll be, you know, called conspiracy theorists. And he, so he's sticking to what he knows and he's not delving into things that he may not know much about. Remember, this is, this, this program is, is so, is so heinous. It's so, it's so criminal that only you have to have a very, very high security clearance to know its intricacies. So I, I don't think he knows he he knows that people were illegally placed, uh, illegally labeled domestic terrorists. He knows that he was taken from investigating like child trafficking to try to get domestic terrorists. So he knows there's a financial incentive behind it, but I don't think he knows the whole story firsthand. That's what I think. Well, we need to fix it. Let's go to the stories that uh, you wanted uh, to talk about in this context of uh, section 702 i want to for those of you that don't know this the ti's that don't know this okay please be very aware when you receive a phone call from hong kong from wherever england don't if you're in the united states that's for united states because that's where the fisa court you know applies for uh, the surveillance it, well it applies to international people but that's where the FBI gets a warrant without probable cause at the FISA court. So, you know, without the same threshold of probable cause that an Article Three court demands, because Article Three courts demand not only that it's a higher threshold, but that they inform you about it. In the FISA court, it always it, it stays secret. It stays confidential. In an Article Three court, you are entitled to confront and to challenge it. Okay, so that's basically the difference. So if you receive a phone call from abroad and you're in the United States, do not answer it because that might be a trap, an entrapment to renew a FISA warrant against you. Just this past week, I was calling an 800 number within the United States. They sent me to China and the woman the called the customer service person is like, no, no, I have to call you back. 
And I'm like, no, just send me a confirmation code over the email. She's like, no, I have to call you back. When she called me back, she was calling me back from Hong Kong. And that is nothing other. I am absolutely certain that they wanted to renew my FISA warrant on me. And I'm not going to, you know, obviously I didn't answer the phone. So I, it's just my I heart. It's the advice that I give you because it's the advice I carry out for myself. Well, the, this week, there are two really important um, in news stories. One is that an eight-week-old infant was placed on the watch list because when his parents, that uh, his father is a J6 defendant, um, they were flying, and so in the boarding pass of the infant, they put the four S's associated to category handling code two, which is suspected terrorist. Well, this article, everybody should be very familiar with it because it's an article, it's an eight-week-old baby that in in his boarding pass had the four S's that are associated uh, with being on the watch list. As you know, the watch list is a com component, is a, a handling codes one and two, which are known and suspected terrorists. Known terrorists are immediately arrested, so it's much more like suspected terrorists. So the interesting part about this is that he is the son of a, a J6er defendant. And his fiance was the one that booked the flight for her and the baby. So it wasn't like it was him and the baby. No. So clearly the baby is already in a terror watch list. And the article states, and it's probably misinformation provided by TSA, that the that they are in a, on a list that it's called it's called Quiet Skies Program. That it says that targets travelers who are not under investigation by any agency and are not in the terrorist screening database. But that cannot be true because TSA does not have the legal authority to to prepare to make any kind of list. The only authority was the one granted by the White House in 2003, George Bush Jr. to the FBI through that Homeland Security Presidential Directive that all the agencies decided that it was the FBI doing the terrorist screening database because they have the investigative uh, personnel, etc. right? So TSA not only does not have the legal authority, nor the mechanisms to have their own list, right? So that's that's a, probably a, a false statement that they just threw out there. And 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 when you look at this, because here's the thing: when you when you read the news and you see what's happening in the court, what I'm thinking is that let's say that uh, Mr. Kovac prevails in his appeal. Well, they're going to want to maintain their own little list, and that and these. This is preparing the ground to make, let's say, moot any decision by the court because they have their own little shenanigan going on here, TSA. Uh, but they don't have, they have the authorization to screen people, but not to create the watch list. So let's see how that plays out. That's, that's one of the articles people should just looked at it and, uh, because it's absolutely not true that they have a legal authority. And if they are creating their own list, it's illegal. They don't have a legal authority to create it. They have only the legal authority to carry out the screening of passengers. That's all it is. This is the second article that Anna sent to me. Please tell me what uh, what's going on here, Anna. Okay. Well, this is also has to do with uh, Quiet Skies. Brian Smith, he's a J6er, and he is he attended the protest, okay? Uh, he's a 20-year Army veteran with an unblemished military service record. So he was placed on the same quiet skies list where it seems that all J6ers have been placed, whether you were accused or not. Just having gone there makes you be on this list, it seems... And um, I think that's why uh, Jim Jordan is asking, uh, I think, Bank of America for the records that they 
delivered um, to the FBI on on Americans that attended that um, January 6th. I'm going to read the quote by Mr. Smith because it's going to ring so true to most targeted individuals out there. He said, you're not supposed to know if they exist. You're not supposed, uh, this is about the air marshals because the air marshals, there's 3,000 air marshals that ensure our skies are safe and they are opposed to being placed on these uh, travels, on these trips uh, with these Jake Sixers because they really believe that these people don't represent a terrorist threat. And he says, you're not supposed to know you're on the list. Not only that, you have no recourse to address it whatsoever. There is no way to confirm you are on the list. So there is no way to appeal it and no way to limit the time period you are on the list. It is a blatant violation of the Fourth Amendment right to illegal search. Because I am on this list, I can only check in on the counter. And when I do, so he cannot do the online check-in. And when I do, the agent is on the phone for hours trying to verify whether I am allowed to board the plane. You cannot change your flight. You are flagged and then taken somewhere else and strip searched. Do you know what kind of humiliation this is for a 20-year veteran that with an unblemished record of servicing service to this nation? And, and they are being treated like petty criminals. They take everything out of your bag. You have to take all of your electronics and turn them on. What's worse, once you go through security, you have TSA agents at every gate. And I am not talking one of two or two. There were at least seven on each gate for every connecting flight. They follow you everywhere. So uh, clearly they're treating these people worse than the average targeted individual that they don't let them know they're on the list. You know, he, although they don't confirm to him that he's on a list, they treat him as if he was a criminal. And uh, I cannot imagine, you know, yeah, we are, uh, you know, targeted individuals are tortured. Their houses are breaking in, broken into. Their emails and online interactions are all surveyed. Their phone, the phones, conversations are also intercepted. But at least uh, when it comes to traveling, you know, the, the plausible deniability was that they were not allowed to stop you or do additional searches because then you would become suspicious as to why am I on this list. But they're not doing that with the J6ers. They are intentionally making their lives very hard. So I have no doubt that these people are all in handling codes three or four. But because they are associated to January 6th, they intentionally screen them to make them, you know, to humiliate them, basically. It's interesting that I never heard until you shared these articles to me. I never heard of the Quiet Skies program. Oh, have you heard of it before, Eva? In the course of the research for the lawsuit, I think I came across that term, but always within the context that it operates using the TSDB as the source for their, you know, for their operations. I think that the reason you are listening to it now more in the news is because they might be preparing for a court to strike down the legality of the TSDB. And so they want to have their backup list, like I said, to continue the targeting of people without due process and in violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's very much expected that they, they would hide under a different name. The government is really good with language. Just like instead of calling it Havana Syndrome or something like that, they call it AHIs, Anomalous Health Incidents, which doesn't fool any anyone. This is just another name to distract from what it actually is. This sounds like exactly the same distraction, which uh, government is so good at. It's propaganda. They change the language. They change meaning of the words. 
and that they think that they can fool us. And some are fooled by it. Just like those people who collaborate with fusion centers, they think that they're carrying out their patriotic duties. And I feel sorry for them because they've been lied to. I wish for them to get better educated about our fundamental rights enlisted in the uh, Declaration of Independence and uh, Bill of Rights. In the case of the TSCB, I, it escapes my mind now, but they're also uh, doing already implementing with the Department of Defense, like a parallel watch listing program that we can talk about in next week, because I haven't studied it thoroughly because I'm devoting my time to the brief, but uh, it did. It was in a newsletter this past week. It was in a in a targeted justice newsletter, and and that's one one of the reasons in anticipation of that that we had demanded in the complaint to implement a court monitor that will ensure that these shenanigans of going around and making another list don't happen. We really hope that the justice comes through and uh, we are successful in our efforts and and if not well we'll go to the supreme court and if not we're going to continue we're not we're never going to stop and and in this uh junct at this juncture i want to share with you something so pretty i got today send me these cute cute tasmanian devils that they're really uh thought to be mean creatures but they're not they're just you know feisty and they never give up and they are they inspire respect on on other creatures. So I I love my my Tasmanian devil spirit animal that was sent to me. And thank you, thank you to the person that sent it to me. It's very much appreciated. You are a honey badger too. We're <laughs> both honey badgers. Well, what a wonderful way to end the show. I don't know my my spirit animal, but it must be a very very stubborn animal. Perhaps a bear perhaps a lion, but a very, very stubborn animal because my health has been decimated to the point that I cannot guarantee if I'm going to be here next Sunday. The only reason I wouldn't be here next Sunday is if I'm incapacitated. And that's the truth. But I understand the most important thing that we're doing here is we educating people about our legal efforts. And that I will not miss for the world. And that's why we will be here every Sunday. Rain or shine. Mm-hmm.